Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Sheila. Hi, everybody. My name is Sheila. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Sheila. And I'm grateful to be here. Uh, Jesse, thank you for having me, and I think uh, Andrea had reached out to me as well, and, and so thank you. It's good to be here. This is my first time uh, at a live OA meeting uh, since March of 2020, and um, um, I've been to live meetings in the mother program, but this is my first time at an Overeaters Anonymous meeting. And many of you might have noticed I kind of clomped in on, uh, on two canes. I'm dealing with a major back issue. And um, since I can only pray for the knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out, but you can pray for my health and wholeness, so I would just invite you to do that, right? I welcome any and all prayers. And... Uh, the great thing is, is I had some trepidation, right? Which is ironic because the whole basis of 12-step programs is about sharing our vulnerabilities. And yet it's, it's amazing how quickly it comes up that I feel like I need to show up and I need to be looking a certain way and feeling a certain way and have it all together. And the reality is the most valuable thing I can do is show up and reveal how vulnerable I am as a compulsive overeater, as a human being, as somebody who's now, right now, these days, dealing with a disability. But uh, it's really good to be here, and um, I love you all, and I love Overeaters Anonymous, so just be prepared, because I'm going to be waxing poetic about OA. <laughs> and I really want to, uh, congratulations, is it Michelle, on the 90 days? Yeah, good on you. Well done. <laughs> I, I really loved, you said something that was um, really meant a lot to me, and in true, true to form, I can't remember at all what it was you said, but you said something really incredible that, that meant a lot, and I think that's really awesome that you've got three months. And I really want to welcome the people who are coming back, or people who are new, particularly if people are, were coming back. Um, I've been in Overeaters Anonymous for, uh, yeah, I guess it's 30, 30 four years, and um, I have 21 years of abstinence. I was a slipper for a dozen years. And all that means is I just wasn't ready to feel the feelings. That's all it means. I didn't know that at the time. I thought that it was a moral issue. I thought something was going on, that there was something wrong with me, or I wasn't working it hard enough. And that I, I couldn't quite figure that out because I was doing everything that you asked me to do. But I just, I, I couldn't conclusively stop doing quantity eating. And it took me a long time to be ready to put down the sugar. And, um, and I, as I said, that's what I thought it was for a long time. But the reality is, one of the things that unfolded for me here over time is I got very clear. I always knew that I'd been dealing with some kind of sexual trauma. And that's a big part of my story. So... Um, you know, and thank God for Overeaters Anonymous that it, o, OA had the wisdom to put out that latest book that deals with body image and sexual trauma. And, you know, my story is one of the stories in that book. 
because I, it, it figured in huge in terms of my eating disorder. I was molested by two different men on numerous occasions at 5 and at 10. And it just colored everything in my life. Now, I was born a compulsive overeater. I have had a, a problem with sugar from the get-go. And probably because I was an unplanned pregnancy and my mother was dealing with serious mental health issues, having grown up in an alcoholic home, right? I grew up in an alcoholic home and neither of my parents were alcoholics, but my grandfathers were. And alcoholism travels south quickly. So I was affected by alcoholism and the pathology. And because my mother's alcoholic father wasn't even just violent and just a child beater, he was a beater upper. My mother was a wounded bird and she was dealt with serious mental health issues. And because I was the, the youngest child, probably an unplanned pregnancy, siblings all much closer in age, I'm the one who spent the bulk of the time with her. So are you, are you getting how this just stacked up? I mean, shame was a huge, huge part of my story. You have the alcoholic shame. You have the sexual trauma shame. You have the compulsive overeating uh, shame. You have the shame when you all of a sudden you're the fat girl in high school, right? And boys are making nasty comments. I mean, it, it all just stacked up. It was just painful for a long, long time. And I started in Al-Anon in 1986. I got clean and sober in 1987. And three months into to my sobriety, I turned to the woman next to me who was at a healthy body weight. I'm not sure why I would have turned to her and asked this question. But I said, do you think you can have a problem with sugar like we have a problem with alcohol? And she said, absolutely, go to Overeaters Anonymous. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how OA worked. I knew in AA you didn't drink. So I show up at this OA meeting. My top weight's 200 pounds. And it's February of 1988. And I figure, you know, again, I know you don't drink in AA. So I show up at this 11 a.m. OA meeting, not having eaten. And um, there were five of us in the room. It was in a hospital in, in Lansing, Michigan, on Michigan Avenue. And there was a beautiful African-American woman who was leading the meeting. And she was at a healthy body weight, and she had just completed her doctorate at Michigan State University mm -hmm. down the street. And I was so impressed with her because I was in the seventh year of my four-year undergraduate degree. <laughs> and I, again, I was just dealing with... The, the, and the weight was the smallest part of it. It would be great if that had been the, the, the greatest amount of pain. But it wasn't. It was everything that I just talked about. And just an, an inability to be connected with my heart. That's what hurt the most. I didn't know it then, but I'm real clear about that now. So um, if I would have taken the direction that I got at that first meeting, because through the course of that hour, I'm hearing this conversation about absence. I'm not clear what that is. So afterwards, that woman stayed and talked with me, and, and um, she said, do you, do you have a... Because I said, what is, what is abstinence? And she said, do you have a problem food? Is there something that gives you some trouble? And I said, sugar. And she said, yeah, that's a real common one for a lot of us. She said, do you think it would be possible for you to not eat sugar today and just eat three meals? Because I revealed to her that I hadn't eaten. And she said, well, when you leave here, go have breakfast. But she said, could you, could you not eat sugar and just eat three meals? Now, I'm hoping the conversation went beyond that. Because we wouldn't ever want to send anybody out the door with that kind of information. Oh, you got a problem with sugar? Just eat three meals a day, no sugar. Good luck with that. We'll see you next week. Bye, right? But even if the conversation didn't go beyond that, even if it didn't, the responsibility would have been mine. And that's really important for me to get, that the responsibility was mine. Because if I don't have any responsibility, I don't have any power. 
And because of what I experienced in, with the alcoholism, with the sexual trauma, with a father who had three overweight daughters and didn't like it and was very vocal about it, because I have such a natural tendency to immediately segue into the victim mode, it's really important that I am clear that I've got to stay in that place of responsibility. And because I had the experience in those other two programs, I knew how this worked. So even if the conversation didn't go beyond that, I knew that I, I knew that you, you, that the the credits weren't going to transfer, but the study habits were going to. I knew that, so I knew that I was going to have to go to meetings and I was going to have to get a sponsor. The, you know, the first and third word of the first step, most important word of any 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 place and steps, traditions, concepts. We we admitted we. So I knew that I, I, I was going to have to get a sponsor and work the steps, even if, even if the conversation didn't go anywhere beyond that. And I never saw that woman again. I mean, she probably had completed her education and got out of town. But within a couple of weeks, I had a sponsor. But I left that meeting and I followed her direction. I went and I had a meal. I went to a restaurant and I remember the waitress brought it and set it down and I ate the meal and then I went and I sat in my car and I thought, huh. Three meals a day, and no sugar. Get a sponsor, work the steps. <sighs> it's got to be more complicated than that. And for the next dozen years, I proceeded to complicate it. I just did. Because I couldn't dumb it down. I couldn't keep it very, very simple. And it's really somewhat simple asterisk on the wall. Because I had a lot of feelings that were inevitably going to come up for all of the reasons that I talked about, I just, I, I wasn't equipped to deal with those. But I got a sponsor within a couple of weeks, and what became clear is that, again, I wasn't ready to stop the quantity eating, and I wasn't ready to stop eating sugar. And I'm not going to lie to my sponsor about my food. I just, I'm, that, that's a bullet that I managed to dodge. I'm, I'm not going to lie about what I'm eating. That's, you know, that's like bringing a, a tennis racket to a bowling alley. I'm not going to lie about what I, you're not even at the starting line. So I was really lucky that I had that going on and it became clear. And so I revealed to this sponsor that I just, you know, I wasn't ready to, to stop uh, the sugar and I was still overeating pretty substantially, right? Because I was young. I mean, I was 24 years old and I weighed 200 pounds. So I'm eating pretty good. <laughs> and um, she said, uh, she said, the food is a God job. She said, we read the A, B, and C at the end of how it works, right? On page 60, A, we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. C, that God couldn't would if he were sought. And that B was really, really important, right? That probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And my sponsor was very clear about that. She said, that is a God job. I don't know when this is going to happen for you, but that's a God job. Now, you have a job. You're powerless over food, but you're not powerless over taking action. You're not powerless over getting to a certain number of meetings, and however many meetings it was. I can't remember. I don't know if she was the you know, three meetings a week club or not. But, um, and she had me get commitments at meetings, and I got started going with outreach calls. I was directed to make outreach calls because she said, you're powerless over food, but you're not powerless over using the tools and doing those things on a daily basis. So I got going, and I was just following direction. 
And it didn't, I, I, I mean, again, I knew how I was doing this in, in the other program. I didn't get a sponsor in Al-Anon for years, but I you know, certainly was doing the deal with my AA sponsor. And again, this didn't necessarily make sense to me, but I felt the love so much when I came in the room and always have. It has always been the carrot that has drawn me to the 12-step rooms, not the, not the stick. So I just, I, I was prepared to do whatever you asked me to do because I didn't want to take the chance that you were going to ask me to leave. And not that I, it wasn't even that I didn't have anywhere else to go, but I just, I loved it too much. I was experiencing something that I'd never experienced in my family, which was really kind of unconditional love and kind of a healthy family, you know, kind of a sense, you know, you feel more connected in the same way you feel more connected sometimes with siblings or aunts or particular uncles or whatever it is, right? But I just, I, I felt, I felt the love here and I didn't want to, I didn't want to miss out on that. So um, I was just do I was just plodding along and working the steps and doing the the following the direction right and um, again I came in 1988 and as I said I had that dad who would make nasty comments about my weight and again I have two older sisters so there's three girls and my oldest sister my dad would give her grief and you know he'd throw a baseball at her she'd throw three back so he wasn't going to give her too much trouble. And my middle sister worked in my dad's business, so he didn't want to give her too much trouble. So I was an easy target. And so I started going in 1988, started doing the deal, and, and I, my whole 12-step journey started in Ohio. So we were influenced by, I mean, in Michigan. So we were largely influenced by the 12-step the program of Alcoholics Anonymous from Bob Smith from Ohio, right? And Bob's theory was that you go through the steps over and over and over again, in contrast to Bill Wilson and the New York cohort who were saying you go through the steps one time and then you're basically going to do 10, 11, and 12 for the rest of your life. And for a long time, Bill thought you just did one four-step. And he reverses himself and he talks about it in AA Comes of Age. But again, so I already knew coming into this that I was going to be going through the steps over and over again. So I didn't ever have any pressure when I got to fourth steps or anything like that. And I was working steps in different places. So it was just a you know, it was just like a, a, a speckling of, of great recovery that was happening all the time. Never felt any, any real pressure because I knew how this was going to go. So I'm two years in, and I've lost 20 pounds because my top weighs 200 pounds. I haven't weighed 200 pounds since February of 1988, and I'm thoroughly convinced it was because of that direction I got from that sponsor, which is, regardless of what I was eating, be working the steps. And I'm not here to debate with anybody about whether you can work the steps in Overeaters Anonymous if you're absent or if you're not. I, I don't participate in, in any arguments in, with anybody in 12-step programs because we're all hard-headed, we're all stubborn, and we want to win the argument. And I just, I can't, I can't afford that, that kind of grief. And besides, it all works. And how do you argue with somebody's esh? How do you argue with somebody's experience, strength, and hope? So if somebody has some experience, how do you argue with that, Right. And, and, and if anybody has an opinion about what you can and can't do, where is it written down, right? So I, I, all I knew was I was following direction. And two years in, so now it's 1990, and I weigh 180 pounds. So I'm still not abstinent. It's going to be another 10 years before I'm abstinent. But something's going on. Something's happening, and I don't know, what's, I don't know what it is. But I'm 20 pounds down, and I'm at a family event, and I walk by my dad, and he said, okay, I can see you've lost some weight, but you've got a lot more to go. Don't let up. And I turned around, and, I, and you know, there's you know, all kinds of people at this family event. And I turned around, and I said, no more. That's it. It's over. You do not talk to me about my weight anymore. It's over. 
And it was never okay for my dad to talk to me about my weight. It was inappropriate on myriad levels. It was never okay. And I remember, you know, everybody was kind of like, oh, my God. Because nobody talked to my dad like that. And I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. But I was really just trying to meet fire with fire. And I finally, through the course of working the steps for a couple of years, had developed that sense of self, that sense of value, that I could stand up to the bully who'd been shaming me for a lifetime based on what I weighed. Now, nobody can tell me that's not recovery. That's what I'm saying. How do you, how do you argue with what somebody's experience is? And that's what also clarifies to me, as I look back on it now, I didn't know that at the time, that recovery doesn't have anything to do with, with what I weigh. You're not getting any valuable information, nothing that's relevant about me. You're, if you can see it, that's some of the least relevant information. So what I weigh, what I'm wearing, how, how good the, you know, my hair colorist is, who does my highlights, the deal with the canes, anything you can see, that's, that's not the relevant information. It's all about the stuff on the inside. So through that, that step work, something was shifting and the weight was coming off. And it continued and continued and continued until I got abstinent. And I actually had a sponsor who came forward because now I weigh about 155 pounds at this point, right? So it's 2,000. I have a sponsor. I'd gotten a major health diagnosis at one point in time. My doctor sent me to an RD. So I've got a, a, a sponsor and I've got a, a registered dietitian. And neither of them know each other. And the RD is also in program, but she doesn't know my sponsor. My sponsor doesn't know her. Independently of one another, these women in the same week in May of 2000 said, enough. We're declaring an abstinence date for you. This is bananas. You're 45 pounds down from your top weight. You go to a lot of meetings. You work the step. But unfortunately, I couldn't do, because I wasn't abstinent, I couldn't do what is really one of the most important things we do here, which is sponsor other people. And I was missing out on that. So they shoehorned me into an abstinence state. Again, didn't necessarily make sense to me, but I was just following direction. So I said yes. And I'm, boy, am I glad that I did. And I just built from there. And I'm really lucky that I've got an incredible sponsor and one of the things my sponsor um, is a huge proponent of is the insanity of perfectionism, this pursuit of perfectionism. She always says she doesn't think Overeaters Anonymous has anything to do with food, and it has everything to do with the disease of perfectionism. But that's what we're really trying to combat, whether it's the perfectionism of what did I eat, and oh my gosh, I had an extra this, so I have to start over, or... Oh, you know, this person should behave this way. This one should be doing that. You know, you know, thinking as I was driving over here with my husband, when I'm not late, you're all driving fine. <laughs> it's only when I'm when when the thinking is off, when the, when I've gotten a foothold here that it's off that that I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. You're in trouble. My husband's really in trouble, and it just it's just. It, it just lets me know what this is really about. And I, in terms of how I, how I, I 
sponsor people because that's that's the magic, right? It's not my my sponsor who keeps me abstinent. It's my sponsees. And 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 we know we got that foundationally from program because if if Alcoholics Anonymous had been dependent, if it had been dependent, Bill had been dependent upon his sponsor, upon Ebby keeping him sober, there's a good chance we wouldn't all be here because Ebby drank. Ebby died drunk, right? So it's the sponsees, it's those people. And I was missing out on that big thing. And I had this idea and just didn't, hadn't had any sponsor or anybody who'd kind of corralled me and, and put two and two together that it was time for me to start building an abstinence because I don't want to miss out on the sponsoring people. Not, not even because, not, not even just exclusively because, you know, it's what keeps me abstinent. But, you know, the language is pretty powerful in here. In Chapter 7, working with others, write this par- paragraph, first paragraph. Practical experience shows that nothing so much will ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Well, that's pretty clear, right? It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Here we go. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. The bright spot. That's the article. The, not A. Is the bright spot of our lives. I don't want to miss out on that. I don't want anybody to miss out on that because they're not ready to put down the sugar or they're not ready to stop the quantity eating. I don't know what's going on for anybody. I've, I've listened to too many fifth steps in, in four different programs, and I've heard stories that would curl your hair. I'm not going to be the one who's going to stand in front of somebody and say, you don't get to work the steps because you're, you haven't put down the food. Oh, meanwhile, I, you should be able to feel the feelings behind this, your dad doing that, your brother doing that, whatever. That that is so above my pay grade. That is not what I'm here for. I just want to make myself available to take somebody through the steps. Why? So they can get abstinent. Why? So that they can then start sponsoring people. So they can start living out these kind of promises. Right? I don't want anyone to miss out on that. And... In the working with others chapter, which is always where I start people when we're when we're working, and I sponsor chronic slippers, not because I have any idea that I'm doing anything that Lucy can't do or Michelle can't do or Rashad can't do. I don't have a messianic complex with this, but I do have my ash. I was a slipper for a dozen years. I've found some things that work really well. I've had great sponsors over the year. I've had one, you know, pivotal sponsor, Nanette, who's just unstoppable, right? And I, I. I want to I wanna help people get free and get clear about what it is you're really after here. And I, I, I've found some things that have worked really well. And, and the first chapter I always have people start reading is this working with others chapter, which is ironic because it's the step 12 chapter of the book. But I say go through, find one thing on every page to highlight and annotate, at least one thing on every single page because they've done research and they've determined that you actually take in more 
uh, information when you are reading a book if you're highlighting and annotating. So I always make sure that everybody does that. And then I say, and then go back to page 96, reread that paragraph at the top of page 96, and write on it for 15 minutes and call me tomorrow. And here's the paragraph. Do not be deceived. And this is amazing. This is, what, this is what lets you know is that it doesn't matter how long you've been here, right? It doesn't matter how, how, what you weigh or how long you've been absent or any of that nonsense or how, how many retreats you lead. Or any, none of that matters, right? Because you can just see something. You can have something in the book, and I'm sure we've all had this experience where you've got it underlined, you had it noted, it's highlighted in three different colors, and you read it again, and it's like you're seeing it for the first time. And that's what happened a couple of years ago when I was sponsoring somebody. Had them read this paragraph, and then we're reading it together, and all of a sudden something landed for me. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. Now that line got my attention. Because it doesn't say we find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not get sober. It says who cannot or will not work with you. There it is right there. It's telling me right there what, what my job is. And, and what did I hear the other day? One of my buddies said in one of my the mother programs said, a sponsor's job is to hold the light while the sponsee digs. Right? And that's, that's, that's what I, I want to do, is I give people stuff to do. I'm going to give you lots of stuff to do. Why? Because the book does it. These are not my good ideas. Good cop, bad cop. Right? My sponsor always says to me, she says, look, I'll always be your bad cop. You know, if you have, a, have trouble with a sponsor, you tell them that, yeah, I know, I don't, I don't like doing it either, but my sponsor, she thinks that they're going to, you know, she said, I'll always be your bad cop. But your bad cop which is really the good cop, he's right here. This book is full of things. You can call them suggestions if you want, I guess. But it's like a suggestion. If you don't know how to swim and you fall in a pool, I suggest you start moving your arms and your legs. Like just, it's, it, 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 it's, it's right here. It's right here. And, 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 and so I sponsor exclusively through the big book. It doesn't take a long time to go through the steps. So we start in this chapter. Then we're going to go do the, the step one chapters. There's four of them, but then I actually I sneak in uh, Dr. Bob's story too because the whole program is predicated on um, you know the we. So um, we go back and we start with the uh, doctor's opinion, right? Because after you read the doctor's opinion, and again they're reading a chapter a day and writing for 15 minutes, so they're going to people when I'm sponsoring them, you're going to be on a four step within about 10, 11 days, and. Um, in the doctor's opinion, you, you, you read that, you believe that, it's going to answer the two questions I have. Why can't I eat the way I used to, and why can't I stop now that I want to? It's the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. And the obsession of the mind never goes away, which is why the recommendation is, and I know I've just got a minute here, the, the recommendation is that, um, uh, sorry, I lost it when I was thinking about the time. So, um, All right, so that's doctor's opinion, and then I get to, the, to Bill's story. And when I really, really believe the doctor's opinion, I believe about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind, the obsession of the mind, so that's what, that's what it was. It's never going to go away, which is why I'll be in meetings for the rest of my life. I got it. Very good. Thank you for that, Bridget. And then, um, 
And then I read um, Bill's story. And if I really believe all the things that Bill went through, all the things he tried to do to, to get himself to, to stop drinking, he had health problems, financial troubles, strong resolution, sense of impending doom, potential suicide, escape from life, elite treatment centers. He was there three times. It was the third time that was one, finally. Uh, Self-knowledge, fear, hopelessness. You know, there were just a whole, all these things that he tried. If I really believe and it didn't work for him, it's probably not going to work for me. So I, I already have the foundation of doctor's opinion, and now I read Bill's story, and I believe Bill's story. If those things are true and I'm convinced of those two things, those two chapters, I can only eat on a lie today. I can only eat on a lie. And there's three lies. First lie, it's not going to bother me this time. It's not going to bother me this time. Right? Sugar's always been a problem in the past, but it's not going to be a problem today. Second lie, it's going to bother me, but I'll be able to control it. So I can eat it, but I'll be able to stop tomorrow. Or better yet, I'll stop Monday. <laughs> and then the third lie is it doesn't matter. My life has no value anyway. So, um, yeah, I'm always so struck with these kind of things, how quickly the time goes. So we just won't get to all of it, and then there's you know two more step one chapters. But I take people just through just like that. We just go through chapter after chapter after chapter, spend a couple of weeks on, a, on an inventory because it doesn't take a long time to do a big book inventory because you're not writing copious amounts of stuff. You're just basically checking boxes. And, um, and then, you know, we, we get all the way to the end, and then we get back to the... To the uh, to the uh, working with others chapter again, and now the person is reading it two months, three months later, however long it takes, depending on how many, um, how long your four step was, because that lets you know how many amends you have to make in terms of the eight step list. So um, then they're reading the working with others chapter and kind of seeing it from it with a new set of eyes, right? They're seeing it now from the different perspective and realizing the the value of what it is they have to offer. So um, I think we're gonna, I'm gonna end it and see if there's any. Uh, any chatting, any questions from the floor? And otherwise, I can just keep going. But I just want to see if you guys have any questions. Right. Well, I got a question for you. Yep. So when you were talking about it, if sponsees continue to pick up while you're working the steps, like how do you handle that in your, like how have you handled that in your experience? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. No, that's good to see. Um, you yeah, no, I just, I, you, you know. Repeat the question to you? Yep. Uh, how do you handle it if somebody picks up while you're working with them? We just keep going. We just keep going. What I, and I, well, I have this conversation in the beginning because, again, I'm working with people who've been banging their head against the wall for years. People who've been standing in front of a wall, they bend over, they're going to run into the wall and, bam, hit the wall, and you know, they're going to fall on the ground and kind of do the cartoon stars or circling the birds you know, around their head. They're going to stand up. They're going to go, oh, my God, I'm never going to do that again. Now, what about that wall, right? And it's just been doing this for years. So with this has been going on for a long time, so we have the conversation. So I, I, I prep them going in. I, I have the conversation because then I figure if you want out, let's just make it easy on both of us. Let me, let's just have the conversation in the beginning. And I say, if you get back into the food, I just need you to know. Because, again, keeping in mind, I'm going to point out that they're, they're going to have read that chapter, right? Because I always start with the working with others before we're going to get into a real conversation because I want them to see that paragraph. That my responsibility is, is to, to, to help people who are willing to work with me. Not get sober, not get absent. I can't make that happen. 
So if you get back into the food, your responsibility is still going to be to work with me. I always tell people, you got to give me something. You got to give me abstinence and the work, or you got to give me the work. But if you just change your eating, but you're not doing the work, and you do that for three or four or five days, I'm probably not the sponsor for you. Because I'm not sure how it can be helpful for you. Because if you're in the rooms and you're convinced you belong here, the, 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 the food is not the problem. It's the solution. It's the caboose of the train. It's not, the, it's not what is going to take me out. Being overweight is not what's going to kill me. What's going to kill me is losing access to my heart. That's where I'm going to lose everything. That's where it's game over. If I don't have this... If I feel like I've got to show up and i got to be a badass and, you know, oh, I can't come lead their live meeting because I'm walking with canes and, oh, that, that ain't cool. What are they going to think? What are they going to think of me, right? Ego, all that stuff. I'm off. So if somebody gets back in the food, the responsibility is still the same. I had, a, I had sponsors who told me that in the beginning who said, I don't care if you got back in the food. You get that fourth step done, love. Have it done. I've, plenty of times I read fist steps with food stains on the paper. Mm. Plenty of times. Because I just, I encountered those kind of people who said, just keep going. This is not like alcoholism. I'm not a drug and alcohol counselor. But, but I, <laughs> it's a process. There's different between process addictions and alcohol. It's just not the same. And I'm not here to debate, and I don't want to argue, and people point to this and the book and that, you know. We all want to be right. How about we all just say that, oh, that's the great thing about OA is it's so all-inclusive. Make it wide enough for everybody. I'm a whammer. I weigh and measure my food. I like that. That works for me. But and, yeah, I grew up with that, lots of diabetics in my family, so I, I'm, not, I'm not thrown by a scale. But other people that they don't want to do it, they want to do intuitive eating. Why would I want to stand on the sidelines and go like, <laughs> intuitive eating? <laughs> All right, good luck with that. Why would I want to do that? It works. It works. And if somebody wants to have somebody start over and this and that, that's because you got back into the food and you, it just doesn't throw me. It's like, it's like this sponsor of mine, Annette, is always saying. I'm a compulsive overeater. My natural inclination, that's the natural tendency is to overeat. What's unusual is when we don't. What's unusual is when the alcoholics don't drink. That's the anomaly. So when somebody's doing what they do, why would I want to make a big deal about that? Why would I want to say to somebody, we're going to bring you into a program and you, you've decided you belong here, so we're telling you the only thing that will allow you to solve your eating problem is working the steps of Overeaters Anonymous. Oh, by the way, get abstinent before we're going to work the steps. Or, oh, don't get back into the food. But we've told you you were powerless and you have to be convinced, and that's in step one, but, oh, you got back into the food, so now we got to do... What? Like... I, I just want to let my heart, the only thing I care about in Overeaters Anonymous is that people know it's a safe place. You're safe. Because, and, and maybe that's because I felt so unsafe for so long in my life. I just want people to know it's safe. And it's safe for you to be honest with me about your food. 
You don't need to lie. And it's safe. I'm not going to pull you off uh, in a, a, a ninth step and throw you back to step one because you, 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 you couldn't make it by the seas without darting in for some more R&D. I, 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 I want people to feel safe. And I'm glad I'm at a healthy body weight. It wouldn't work for me, given some, especially now with the back stuff, it wouldn't work for me to be dealing with, with an extra amount of weight. But I do know, I could not be clearer about this, my value has nothing to do with what I weigh. Mm. Nothing. Nothing. I don't know what anybody's supposed to weigh. I don't have an opinion about what anybody weighs in Overeaters Anonymous. We're not all supposed to. It, I just, it's, it's, not, it's such an uninteresting conversation. But the conversation to be in the work and be immersed in it and like diving deeper and reading the book and oh my gosh, I have this thing highlighted and yet I'm seeing it for the first time. That's exciting. That's exciting. That's what I want. That's where that that's the the holy place I want to be in. And I've been knocked out too many times by by newcomers saying things that just blew me away. I don't want to miss out on that. So long answer. I just keep them going. Like like go go through a four step. Be a, be in a four step in the food. Good luck with that. Yes, yeah, sure. Sorry, I talked too much. Yeah, go ahead. Thanks, thanks so much. Um, if and when you've realized that a sponsee, you know, isn't doing the work and or isn't being abstinent or just isn't a fit, what do you? Or say in that case? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I'm going to answer this briefly because you had your hand up too. I just say, again, because we, uh, so, oh, thank you. So what do you do if somebody isn't doing, you said two things, if they're not doing the work, which is one thing, and if they're not staying absent. Again, the absent, not my, that's a God job. But if they're not doing the work, and this goes on for three, four, five days, what I say, because we, so many of us have been hurt, and it's, it's just too painful, I, I handle that conversation very, very gently. My background social work. So I just I have a very, very gentle conversation. Just I'm not sure how I can be helpful to you if you don't want to do. And I totally understand, Janie, right? Like I don't always want to do what my sponsor. I don't want to go to three meetings a week. I don't want three commitments at those meetings. I don't want to make outreach calls. I don't want to make three live outreach calls a day. You know, I don't, I don't want to do that either. So I, I handle it like that, right, just to let somebody know. That it's it's safe and it's it's okay and I'm just not sure how I can help you, right? So it's, it's like that, yeah. And I tell them I totally get it. Like anytime anybody doesn't want to do something, I'm like I'm right there with you. I get it too, so that we know at the end of the day, even if they split and I never talk to them again, they know they're not alone, right? Thank you. We're just like. <laughs>